This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. Series 2 was recorded over the summer of 2017. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to the second series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. There is a steel and intelligence at the heart of the plays of Evie Crow that has defined her as one of the most arresting of the exciting group of writers to have emerged out of the Young Writers Programme at the Royal Court in the past decade. She studied a master's course in playwriting at the University of East Anglia, one of the most renowned creative writing master's courses in the UK. I first worked with her towards the end of my tenure as writer's tutor here at the Young Writers Programme in 2005 to 2006. My memories of her are of a student whose intelligence was articulated with a wry and warming scepticism and whose commitment to her form was unarguable. She was chosen to be in the now legendary 2009 supergroup with Penny Skinner and Nick Payne and Ali Abano. Led by Leo Butler, it was a brilliantly curated group of writers and her work there propelled her into the focus of the theatre. She made her debut here in the theatre upstairs the following year with Kin, a startling study of prepubescent sexuality in an English public school. She returned to the fictional forum of the sexuality of education and to the theatre upstairs with Hero in 2012, a humane plea for honesty in the sexuality, this time, of school teachers. She spent time with the Schauspiel House in Frankfurt, written for the Yard Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Unicorn Theatre. Her sewing group, directed by Stuart Lang at the end of 2016, was the play of hers that most lives with me a historical study of pre-industrial work that is set in an imaginary future. It looked with rigour and insistence at the dehumanising nature of what occasionally feels like late capitalism. Lang found for me a means of releasing the poetry in Crow's sharp, gnarly language. She's a writer of conviction and eloquence and the wryness and warming scepticism I remember from our work in 2006 continues, I think, to define her theatre today. Evie Crow, welcome to the Royal Court. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Should I call you Evie or Emma? No, my name's Emma, yeah. Right. And, the, and why, and why, so Evie, what's that about? I think when I wrote Kin, yeah. I just changed it. I just put my initials because I maybe um, wanted to protect myself a bit or something. I didn't want, um, I wanted it to feel not like someone else had written it, but like it was a sort of, you know, um, another version of myself had written it. And actually, and I thought that when people wrote about it, because I knew if it went on, people would review it, that I thought that maybe it would hurt a bit less and um, actually, I was right. <laughs> it did hurt slightly less, not right. totally less, but a bit less. And um, because it didn't feel so immediate, it didn't feel so close. It felt like the person who'd written that play rather than the person who sort of, you know, is at home. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I completely know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. I mean, the plays kind of exist separate to us anyway. Exactly. I think that's true for all writers. Yeah, and yeah. I like the, the notion of kind of having a refinement of your name to own that separation. I think so. And also, you know, like, loads of writers do it. I yeah. think people find it weird, but I suppose I don't find it weird. So, you know, I always think, well, E.M. Forster does it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, you know, yeah. it's yeah. the same <laughs> as him. Yeah, that's a really good thing. D.C. Moore. D.C. Moore as well. And I, I, I always think, although with, with, with DC, I always thought it was to do with his shady day job at the time. Well, if my name was Dave, I'd probably use it. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking, Dave. <laughs> the, um, uh, the question I often ask to kind of kick us off um, is, is what, what was the first time you went to the theatre? Um, I think, well, at that when I, when I was young, we moved a lot when I was younger, so I think my first memory of a proper theatre was probably the um, 
watermill in Newbury. Oh, beautiful fish. Yes. Yeah. We, I think we used to go at Christmas, and I think I saw pantomimes or kind of Christmas plays like that. Yeah, because we lived near Newbury at that time. Do you have any muscle memories or sensory memories of going to the theatre or going to that pantomime? Um, I just remember the seats, I think. Right. That they were sort of <laughs> wooden and quite uncomfortable. But for some reason you were also allowed sweets in there, which sort of gave a nice <laughs> counterbalance to the pain. And I thought... I just remember really liking it. And I also remember my parents really liking it. And it was quite interesting to be somewhere sort of as a family where they were really enthusiastic. Yeah. Um, but it was sort of for us. But I could tell that they were actually really liking it. Yeah. And that was interesting to me, that the play seemed to communicate, like, across to different people. Yes. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that I, I liked that, that it was a kind of outing um, and a thing. And was it a school night as well? Um... No, maybe we would go on, uh, maybe it was like a weekend or maybe a Friday night or Saturday right. night thing. I think, no, I don't think we would have gone on a school night. Um, I remember going to the theatre as a child going on school nights. And and I think that element of it being something that's a bit naughty to go yeah. to the theatre has still really lived yeah. with me. I remember, we, sorry. No, 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 go on. Well, no, we went to the ballet once, which was a more oh. grand choice. No, but I remember this woman tapped us on the shoulder and told us to shut up in the middle of it. <sighs> <laughs> me and my sisters and I just froze for like, for the next two hours you just can't move because you just think she's going to get us you know that happened to me recently at the Donmar Warehouse oh, did it <laughs> <laughs> they told you to shut up yeah now the guy, the guy I think I move around a lot in the theatre and he kind of tapped me and said can't you keep still have you ever been to the theatre before? <laughs> did you say, do you know who no I, I didn't I didn't I didn't and then what was beautiful is eyes you could see because I was with uh, another playwright and you could see his eyes kind of like focus and uh, I bet you bloody work in the theatre today. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So whereabouts, you say you moved around a lot as a kid, Where, whereabouts whereabouts were you going? What, where, whereabouts did you grow up? Um, I'd say we've lived everywhere shit in England. I really think we have. Was this just a kind of interest of your parents just <laughs> yeah, to go to shit to places? Mess what was that us. about? No, they were, my dad was in the forces. Right. Right. The, uh, and, and so you move from barracks to barracks? Yeah. So every two years. The, uh, and you're, you're, you're nodding to uh, producer Anushka sitting in the background. Was that because her dad was in the forces as well? Yeah, she's a military child also. It's very interesting, the, the, the child of the military. Do you think that has defined you in some sense? I think it defines Noosh. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I don't know. I think... Um, does it define me? No, it's definitely an element. And I think there's definitely... Um, I was thinking about this, actually, that there's a sense of theatre about... So what was funny about moving house all the time is that um, everyone used to do it, all the families used to do it, they, they would move and the house would look identical to the previous home they lived in. So they would set everything up the same. The so, military would, there'd be people. No, no, the families when they moved in. Great, so okay. all your gear gets moved yeah. and it gets it arrives in boxes, whatever, and then wow. the wives ostensibly would unpack it, you know. And everything would be arranged to sort of essentially look exactly like the house before. And they might be really similar buildings because the army did build similar buildings. Yeah. But it was funny and people would sort of make their entrances and exits in a in exactly the same way, in a different home. So it's like a sort of touring show. It's like, you know, what are we going to do when we have a big fight? I'll storm out of this door and we'll take this exit, you know, and how are we going to get, you know, fast from the kitchen to the garden? Right, we're going to have to go round. So, you know, like, you're just sort of setting up the show, but in a different space. That's amazing. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, families are tremendously performative things, yeah. I think. You know, they carry conventions of performance with them and you kind of define yourself in odds with those conventions. Yeah. But it's really great to have it actually manifest in the structure of the house as well, the performance of I it. think so. I think we were like a touring show. <laughs> Definitely. How many sisters do you have? I've got two sisters. I'm the middle one. Yeah. Right, right. And um, uh, I'm interested in writers' schooling as well. Because mm -mm. I think uh, quite often, you know, we learn to write or we literally do writing in schools. Did um, And I guess, I mean, I'm interested in how... 
moving town from shit town to shit town to shit town every two years affected your schooling? Did you have to reinvent yourself every time? Yeah, I mean, I think one of my sisters went to eight primary schools. Jesus. Which is In seven years wild. or eight years. Or yeah. Seven, yeah. And I think I went to three, I think. And then I went to boarding school when I was eight. Right. So that, and then I was in boarding school till I was 18. So, you know, yeah, which is just, that is a whole, you know, another beast, I suppose, mm. in terms of like education. But yeah, I, so I wasn't that conscious. I suppose three is manageable, maybe. Um, and, yeah. but I think that people who move house all the time are quite good at adapting yeah. and quite good at feeling like sort of home is where you hang your hat you know mm. and that it's sort of within you or something that the love or the family unit is internal and it's not associated with the exterior if you've grown up in the same house your whole life it, people are often very attached to the building or to the memories attached to the building whereas I'm not everything's interior so um, that's my sort of memory of that's the sense of home that I have. It's interior. I really don't care that much about buildings or places. It, I care about people, I think. Yeah. How was boarding school? Well. <laughs> I, I did seek it. <laughs> My psychotherapist. Um, no, but it's session. interesting. I think it's relevant for writing, I think. It's... I definitely think a fucked up childhood is a really great way to <laughs> become a playwright. <laughs> I'm joking. If my parents listen to this, it's fine. It was fine. Um, no, it you know that play was not an autobiography. No, it didn't feel like it was either. Um, but I definitely learned a lot about people. Yeah. Um, I don't think I had my own room until I was eighteen. Jesus. So I, I have always shared bedrooms with people, and I have always listened to different types of people breathe at night, cry at night, write letters at night read at night, uh, talk, talk to themselves, you know, just like all manner of human experience I feel happens like when you're confined and I definitely feel like I've witnessed different types of people under different types of pressure conditions mm. and I find that really interesting that, you know, there, there was no off button, no kind of like end of the day. The day just went on and the night was just a whole other thing. And, you know, it was just sort of endless cycle of observing people and being subject to who they are and having to accept that other people permanently exist and <laughs> are sort of in your world. And, um, and I definitely think I learned a lot about people, yeah. Um, when did you start writing? Do you remember early memories of writing for fun or writing for expression? Well, when we were children, when we were eight, we had to had to write a letter home at the, on a Sunday, and you had to have it on From the post table. School, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you had to post it. And I remember on the, about the fifth one, I was like, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" I was just like, <laughs> oh, "Dear mummy and daddy, it's fine," you know, kind of thing. And then you sort of start getting a bit more imaginative because you've got to write a letter, you've got to fill the space, and you're just like, well, pfft, here we go then. I'm just going to ham it up a bit or I'm just going to add in a bit of other stuff, you know. Um, <laughs> and then and then I had loads of pen pals as well. I had a, a Ukrainian pen pal called Sasha, an American one called Crystal, um, an English girl who I met on a, a campsite in France who... Um, I'm sorry if you ever listened to this, which I'm sure you won't, but she did have a lot of sex, and they her letters were great. <laughs> and <laughs> How old was she when you... Well, this was when we were a bit older. This I'd is say when she you were eight like, years old. No, she was like 15 then. Right, OK, yeah. wow. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was like, I think I just had... I was just constantly hungry for connection yeah. and communication and letters, phone calls... Any kind of news from the outside world, anything that wasn't... Because the problem when you live with people all the time is you start predicting their behaviour. And very often they sort of do exactly as you predict. And so it becomes really boring. <laughs> because you're like, and then she comes in, and then she's going to come in, and it's going to kick off, and then da-da-da-da. You know, and, but actually anything fresh or any kind of like unpredictable connection was like I was hungry for that I'd say 
And so I did quite a lot to try and sort of stimulate it by writing letters. Right. And, but, and what about... Did you ever write plays or...? or... No. I, re- I didn't write a play until, um, I'd say, university, I think. Where did you go to university? Leeds. And I was really depressed and I really didn't want to be there. Oh. And I felt like... I think it's because I, I'd been away since I was eight. Yeah. And then I went abroad during my gap year. Yeah. And then... Uh, when I went to university, everyone was like, woohoo, we're away from home. And I was oh, like, God. you fuckers, yeah. I've been away from home for a long time. <laughs> you know, just wanted to go home. <laughs> no, I didn't. I just wanted something else. Right. I didn't want to be subject to another kind of boarding school feeling. I didn't want to be in education. Yeah. I didn't want to be in another system. Yeah. I was really tired of learning. I just wanted to live, basically. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to have to make this up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so... Um, go on. No, so I wrote a play about how much I hated everyone and the university, and then obviously everyone liked it and found it really funny. <laughs> and that was did the start. Yeah, I did, yeah. The, uh, at the university? Yeah. And did, it, did you take it to Edinburgh or anything like that? No, I later went to Edinburgh. Right. With a, another play that I'd written. Had you, so, so that first play... Yeah. Which was an, a, an excavation of your contempt for your peers and, yeah. and, and the structures of your university. Yeah. What was it like staging that? Did you get a kind of... I always think... I always remember the director, Simon Osher, saying that a commitment to theatre is like an illness. And then once you get it, you're fucked. You can't, you can't shake it. Did you feel, once you produced it, you had to do another one? Or? Definitely. I was addicted after that. Um, I think mainly because people said that it was funny... Right. And at that time, that was a real accolade. because Also because I felt like humour had died inside me when I went to university. I just felt like totally flat. And then when people said it was funny, I was like, oh, great. You know, like, mm. we can have a... Lo- oh, if it, once you get your sense of humour about a situation sort of back, you yeah. think, oh, like, you can totally deal with it because yeah. suddenly most things are funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was Chris Thorpe there at the time, or John Donnelly, or was there was well, there a playwright? Yeah, control? loads of playwrights went to Leeds. Yeah, and I were did they not meet them. Of yours, you didn't meet them. No, no. Did you write more at Leeds? You write more plays. Mm. Yeah, I wrote another one that I f- I was proud of, and then I wrote another one that went to Edinburgh, and that was just like the hardest experience ever. Why? What was hard about they it? They just went wild. They were like. I'm sorry again if anyone's listening, but they no, were on right. like some serious drugs, and they they were just Can like you say they you talk the about actors. the actors, yeah. They right. were just they really could not have given less. <laughs> and I found it really pain. It broke my heart because obviously I I really cared a lot, and they they were like asleep, you know, backstage. And I was like, someone wake him up. He's gonna come in, you know. It was really painful, but I learned a huge amount about you know. About the co- the collaborative element of theatre, I suppose that it's not enough just to like write a play yeah. and expect everyone to sort of do it really well. Yeah, you have to that those relationships are broader. That you have to like, and I think I'm still learning that now. Maybe that finding your people in theatre, people who are, find the same things interesting that you do yeah. or funny, and collaborating with them in a way that is sort of meaningful and purposeful and feels really natural. Yes. Isn't actually that easy. Yeah. Um, particularly if you're really fatigued with like public school people. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's quite a lot of them. Yeah, it, it can be hard. <laughs> you know, to sort of get over that feeling that um, you don't know if if you found your people right. in in the industry. It can feel very small, yeah. and then suddenly it just opens up, and you think, oh yeah, of course. All these other people making like totally different work and interested in totally different things yeah. and their idea of what a good play is is totally different to someone else's and suddenly you just feel like someone's opened the window and everything's all right. Oh, that's a, a lovely feeling of our sense of release or relief. And that. Yeah. yeah. So what did you study? You studied English. I studied English like literature and Italian right. because I thought in my mind I was going to move to Italy and just be, like, Italian. <laughs> but obviously then I went and lived in Italy. Did you? Yeah. As part of the degree? Yeah. Or, yeah. And how was that? Um, well, 
it now looking back it mm. feels like the glory of like the European Union it feels like that was just EU like good times you know <laughs> what, could, 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 what year was this roughly was this 2003 right okay I yeah. think yeah, yeah and we were just a whole bunch of people you know if you spoke three languages you were sort of a very basic linguist you know people yeah. were proper right. linguists right and not necessarily because they were sort of geniuses, but they were sort of Belgium, and then you yeah. get like two for free, and you know, <laughs> they they were sort of into it. Yeah. And um, I I don't know. I three of my really good friends who live in London now I met uh, on during that time, and it was a pretty cementing wild time. Like people literally got mo- money from the EU, and they just like got drunk. That is what they did <laughs> every day. And I remember us writing mess- text messages to each other saying, we're really busy today. We've got to go and check our emails. Because <laughs> there was no, no one had like wi- wireless or whatever. Yeah. So we had to go to the university to check our emails. And that was like our job. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is what we did. And then we just had coffee, more coffee. And then we started like aperitivos at what, three? And then that was we just kept going. Oh, wonderful life! Yeah. <laughs> the um um, and you left university. Yeah. And you went to. Did you go straight to the UEA? Yeah. Right. Uh, yes, I only applied to one place, and I thought if I get in, I will keep trying to write. It'll be Brilliant. like a sign. Brilliant. You know. It's beautiful logic to that. Yeah. What um. Did you apply, and was it to do playwriting at UEA? Yeah, the script writing course, right. yeah. Because it's, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a very celebrated school, Yeah. Like the UEA creative yeah. writing. It was the first creative writing exactly. school in England. Exactly, that's what lured me to it, I right. think. Yeah. And Ian McEwan being yeah. in the first year of students. Yeah, Ma- Malcolm Bradbury's that's stuff. Right. And, yeah. How, how was it? Well, I mean, looking back, it was idiotic because I was just not... I didn't want to be in education anymore, you know, and there I was again, like going to learn some more stuff. Yeah. And I had had my fill of essays and structured learning, definitely. But um, I think that it was good in the sense that it gave me a sense of what a person might do if their sole aim is to write something. If you don't have that much else to do. I, I, I had a job and stuff. And there were essays to write. But basically, I remember waking up one morning thinking, I'm so, there was no central heating in the place. I was like, I'm so cold. And I'm also so bored. <laughs> so bored. And I was like, what am I doing here? What am I even doing here? And then it occurred to me, oh, I'm supposed to be writing. That is what I'm supposed to be doing. Huh. So I got up and I started writing something. And I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. You know, like... Um, but I wrote terrible things when I was there, just reams and reams of awful, awful stuff. Like, just awful, really awful. <laughs> well, I love the image, and uh, I, I really want to find out about the awful stuff, but... Uh... No, you don't, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> but when you talk about it, what's nice and the energy of the conversation is you kind of get up and you said, oh yeah, here we go. Is that what writing felt like to you at the time? Yeah. It felt like it's an energising experience. Definitely, like yeah. opening a door into possibility and into total connection with everything that's happened and everything I've, everyone I've ever met and just real life, you know, like that sort of flashes past you and doesn't feel tangible or like you can ever really sort of grab hold of it. And here's a, mo- a chance where you can just grab hold of it and like wrestle it to the ground and really look at it and really yeah. think about it. And I found that amazingly like cathartic or something, you yeah. know. Yeah, that's beautiful. I felt better. Did you, uh, I guess, master's courses could uh, equally empower people to go out into the world determined to write or leave people going, fuck that, I'm going to get a proper job. But presumably it was the former for you. You left UEA wanting to write. Well, I was lucky because I... So at that time, my parents were living near Stratford-upon-Avon. And now they live in Stratford-upon-Avon, but at the time. And um, so I was... Uh, I had, like, um, holiday jobs in cafes and things in Stratford. Yeah. And so... And then I worked at the RSC. And so my sense of new work was um, the other place. 
yeah. before it reopened, obviously. And I had never heard of the Royal Court. I'm sure I'd seen the name, but I hadn't connected that that's what it did. Yeah. And when I came out of UEA, I did have to get a job because I needed the money. Yeah. And I applied. There was an advert in The Guardian or something for a job here, and I applied, and I got it. And I worked for Elise for, uh, in the international department. And a great woman called Tiffany Watt-Smith hired me, yeah. along with Chris James. And I worked for um, Elise. And um, it was just a summer thing, but it blew my mind. I mean, honestly, I cannot describe to you when I first came to the building. I was like, shut up. <laughs> like, this is amazing. And you could just feel it. And I didn't even know what they did, really. And I remember going to see, my name is Rachel Corey, and I was like, no. No, because it just felt so alive. I couldn't believe it. There was no, it was like no frills, no kind of pussyfooting around, just like raw, like here it is. Yeah. And I was so amazed and so excited. What a Probably very annoying. I think I was very <laughs> annoying, but I was very excited. That means, I, I, it's a beautiful infectious energy. That you have when you're talking about coming here for the first yeah, time. Yeah, it, it was it was incredible. I, I literally want to weep. I think I'm going to cry right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! It's normally normally doing these things. I'm the one who starts crying. So. No, I think I, <laughs> I I've listened. I think the I think the women do sound vulnerable on their podcasts. It's very interesting what women do in these podcasts. Is uh, the one really simple thing, and you're illustrating this that our listeners will not know is that. And, and this will be a cheat for series three, and all the male writers will start doing this, is yeah. that women writers instinctively talk to Emily and Anushka, who are sitting in the room with us, where male writers will only talk to me. Because women are people too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Apparently. I mean, and I'm not accusing the male writers who come here of not knowing that, but the nature, the structures of patriarchy are quite yeah. pernicious and complicated. Yeah. And complicated for men and women alike, although it tends to be the men who serve better by it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might be, you know, they might be psychologically damaged, but they tend to get more money out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, um, I should uh, sell my wounds harder. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, and then, and it was at that time, yeah. and you remind me before we started talking, yeah. that that was the first time we met. Yeah, when I passed I was you on, on the stairs. Here, yeah. And someone said, this is Simon, he runs the Young Writers Programme. Which I don't. I was the writer's tutor in the Young Writers Programme. The okay. legendary Ola Anamasha one. Good, yeah. <laughs> run, yeah. Ola, who's also an amazing human being. Yeah. And someone said, I think Tiffany Watt-Smith, because she was quite uh, direct, plain speaking. Yeah. She said, you don't have to be good. They'll just let you in because you're working here. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, it was yeah. like a weight off my shoulders. I was like... I don't have to be good. They're just gonna let me join yeah. for a bit. I, it's a know. really serious point. I'm, I'm, you know, it wasn't. We didn't have script submissions before people came on the course. It was yes. absolutely first come first served yeah. in those days, and and it was important to support people who were working in the theatre. Yeah, um, but I knew quite quickly that it was a bad idea to work on the other side of it. I knew right. that I had to get a real job. I mean. Yeah. They would not have let me stay, <laughs> but they, they, I knew I had to get. A, I knew I had to earn money another way. Right, and so you did. You I were did. doing the course with me and Leo Butler. We were running that course yeah. together at the same time. Yeah, it was my last course and his first. Yeah, and uh, on Monday evenings. Yeah, yeah, and then you were working during the day. Yeah, how was that? Time, how was that time for you? How was the Young Writers Program? How was because a lot of the people listening to this will be people who are at that stage of their career. I mean, I would love to be like coy and blasé, but I can't. It just blew my mind. It it blew my mind because I had spent like, I mean, three thousand pounds seems like nothing now when you think about, it, but that my MA was three thousand pounds, and then there was this course, and I learnt different things, and it was a different type of experience. Yeah. But I think what I wanted was real, more real life. And, that, and there was something about being in the, um, what do you call it, the room down there? In the site. In the site, being yeah. in the site. And <coughs> being with everyone who also had jobs or was like doing different things and just a whole mishmash of people. Mm. And um, it was a bit more 
real, mm. you know. And I remember you saying something at the time about it being, it feeling different maybe because it was attached to a building where plays went on. And that was the missing thing. Like when you're in Norwich or not Norwich, but anywhere, and you're sort of remotely considering the idea in an abstract way of like writing something, it feels much less um, practically minded than if you're attached to a building where you think, wow, they're actually putting things on by people who haven't written that much before. Yeah. And and, and, and I'm just looking at that context, sorry, looking at that in the context of having spent a lot of time in formal education, yeah. which is in some sense separated from the real world, yeah. to come into a place where it's actually, no, this is your job. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. That's quite empowering. And it took me a while to like shake off the... I definitely think I was quite institutionalised and I think, you know, I think a lot of people are who spend a lot of time in very sure. particular educational systems or whatever. And I think it takes a while to kind of free your mind. And But I also think that's part of just being a writer to, you know, to like maybe find a way to value your own experiences and that they don't have to be a particular set of interesting experiences, that yeah. they're just what you've experienced and that's enough. Yes. And the, the difficult thing is sort of um, elevating it or giving it... Um, I don't know, just noticing it and giving it status, basically. And feeling entitled to yeah. speak. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Would and yeah, and even now, all the, a lot of the plays that a person might read are by, you know, sort of older men who yeah. have a, a very particular voice and a way yeah. of speaking about the world. And it can be quite disconcerting when you know that your interior voice is nowhere near those concerns. You're just not interested mm. in what they're interested mm. in. And you understand that those are the things that are considered culturally interesting. However, you're not interested in them. Would, would, does there reach a point when that disconnection between your own interior interests and the, and the interests you're receiving through you know, plays that, or, or, or books that the patriarchy was spewing out, was there a moment where you actually thought, well, fuck them, this is more interesting? I'm going to... Or, or was it... Um, yeah, but yeah. That, that was not an interior self... You know, I did not do that by myself. Right. I, I met women who, like, literally sort of shook me, shook the patriarchy out of me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really complicated thing, and I think you're completely right. And my memory of teaching, and I loved those sessions, my memory of teaching them was often, not always, but often defined by a sense of entitlement between female and male writers. Mm. So that often brilliant female writers... Uh, and I would include you in this list. I always think of Chloe Moss, who was there earlier, so my memory is maybe hotter because it was the first time I'd encountered it, could be quite quiet mm. on the Monday night sessions and kind of just do the work and not say anything. Mm. And then you read their work for the first time, and it's startling, whereas other male writers could be quite vocal. Mm. And sometimes their work was startling, and there are many yeah. brilliant writers who are male writers who oh, came yeah. to that group. But often there was a disconnect between the sense of entitlement to speak of the male writers and the calibre of the writing. Yeah. And the women writers would be quieter but more brilliant. Yeah, and also I think, you know, it was, for me, a learning space. Like, I was learning, but in a different... in the way that I wanted to learn. Mm. You know, in a much less... You know, I didn't fully understand the framework. Yeah. And that felt good. Yeah. And I knew that I was just kind of like waking up or something and that that was enough. That's all I wanted was just to like wake up. And in that sense, the continuation of your kind of narrative yeah. from the introduction group in 2006 yeah. to the, I mean, it's it's become like a mythical super group. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of yeah. Edward Bond was in there and Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a cracking group, wasn't it? That, I mean... I the I just can't even tell you. Yeah, it's on. like a spell or something, you know, because the the it coincided with so many other things. And um, I talked to a lot of like younger playwrights or emerging playwrights about this thing. And I, I think it's even harder now because people, particularly if you live in London, for financially. And I remember it coincided with a time where I had decided, cosmically or something, that I wanted to be a writer. And I said to my boss. Well, there was a step before that. I worked with this woman who was like a life coach and she worked with a lot of young people coming out of prison. And I was doing this mentoring thing to mentor young people coming out of prison. And part of the um, process was the the sessions, the way that they ran was to kind of 
look at the way that certain structures like challenge how you think and all of this stuff. Anyway, the whole point was to challenge how you think. Mm. And at the end of it, she said, like, um, you know, what are you, what are you doing with your life, Emma? Well, you've been working. I worked for this uh, youth charity in Tower Hamlets for four years. She's like, you've been working there for years. You know what? What are you What are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I want to be a writer. And she was like, well, be a writer then. And I was like, mm. I can't. And she, and she knew my boss. She said, go in tomorrow and say you, you want to work, let's say, part-time. And I was like, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. I just can't. They'll fire me. I, I won't have the money I need, blah, blah, blah. And I went in the next day and I said, I want to work part-time. And he went, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got an email saying, yeah. do you want to do the supergroup? And I was like, it's like the universe responded and I, you know, cast a spell and it, and it, it, it was literally like magic. <laughs> you know, honestly. Yeah. And Leah was teaching it. Leah was teaching it. Nick Payne. Nick Payne. Ali Abano, Penny Skinner. Annie Reese. Alice Birch? No. No, she wasn't Annie in that Reese. one. Yeah. Um, Tech of a group. Yeah. And it, I mean, they, I think like Nick, for example, <laughs> would probably describe this very differently. But, um, I think we, it kind of kicked off. I think we just, we talked about everything mm. and we really argued. Mm. And we asked each other, like, why have you bothered to write that play? You know, like, mm. what are you doing? Why? Yeah. Why are you making us read this? What is it? You know, like, it was quite brutal in a way, but also, and really terrifying. And I remember I wrote Kin at that time, or yeah. the first early version. Yeah. And after we read it, I literally just... I, I just sobbed because I felt so like it did matter what they thought, you know. It just for just for clarity of structure, what I understand it was that each week a writer would have their play read by their peers read out loud. Is that right? Or how did people read your early drafts of Kim? Well, there was some more kind of like rogue activities before that. <laughs> <laughs> we would go on an adventure with yeah. Leo, yeah, and we went to loads of different places, and what we kind just of places. We, <laughs> Um, just different places. (laughs) We just went different places. We went to a trading floor, um, and we went to a gallery, and, but also, I can't remember, did we run, we took it in turns to run sessions, Mm -hmm. and yes, and then each week we would read the play when it got right. to that point but also you know Claire McQuillan was also involved mm. in kind of curating and Ruth um Little. thank you Ruth Little, Ruth Little. Yeah. yes yeah. and she came in and did sessions and it and all of that was kind of this the program was very long it yeah. was over months great you know and we really got to know each other and yeah. there was a Monday session I think and a Wednesday session wow so it's intense and substantial yeah and it was really thorough and really well thought out and really um, everyone who was there really, really wanted to be there. And it was, you know, and I, I have subsequently led a group or I've led very young writers, but I've led older writers. And um, the thing I said to them, which I definitely think is true, is that the things you learn most from are your peers, are the other people in the group. And the people I felt most empowered by were them and for the for a long time we all read each other's work and they writers really do give the best like feedback and and there was something a a kind of tipping point I mean to give Leo credit he he is an amazing teacher Mm -hmm. and what he does is do this thing where he creates a space he just creates kind of like a vacuum or something and your job is you know that your job is to fill it so he doesn't tell you like what should be in the space. He just tells you that you have to fill it. And I think that, that he, he did that in a way that made it quite exciting. And it made us feel like if we filled the space in the right way, something amazing would happen. Mm. And he really believed that the plays might go on if we you know, wrote good ones. And that really helped, and he really advocated on our behalf, and he really supported what we were doing. And he was really interested in all of the work and really generous. And I take that with me when I go to, you know, try and help other playwrights in if I, I led one group here. Mm. Just that sense of spirit of generosity, because yeah. I think it is a massive sacrifice in a way. I think you're, potentially your own work can suffer because you, if you really give your heart yeah. to it. And, you know, he, he really did. And... I think it was, 
in a great part because of him, you know, and the, and the combination of those people yeah. um, who were all very, you know... Inspiring. Um, yeah, I think yeah. so. Tell me about the writing of Kin. Um, I don't know. I just... I, I had a friend who's a real, like, radical feminist, and she moved to... She's Australian. She moved back to Australia. And I, for some reason, had enough money for a plane ticket, and I... Um, I went for a week <laughs> to Australia <laughs> and I was just like tired the whole time. <laughs> and, um, but it was great because um, she's amazing, an amazing person and we just talked about loads of stuff. Mm. And then when I got home, I just started writing it. And I don't know why. It wasn't like specifically connected to anything. It was just that I knew that the, the sort of weirdness the surrealness of going to Australia on your own for a week and then just coming back and I was like, this is it. And and it didn't even occur to me that they were 10 or that it might be hard to cast yeah. or none of those things were in my mind. For people who don't know the play, yeah, it's, well, you can summarise better than I can. It's Two 10-year-old girls at yeah. boarding school, yeah. It's Great. kind of about their friendship. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the idea that travel, because I think display, the displacement of travel affords you a clarity. I think we travel in order to look at where we are, where we come from, not where yeah. we go to. I know? think so. Actually, it's good you say that, because I think there is a lesson in it. And I think it, it can be hard sometimes to uh, remove yourself from the everyday. And, yeah. You know, I think going to Australia for a week is quite extreme. <laughs> it's a pretty extreme way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, you could just go to Bristol or something. Or, <laughs> but, yeah. Let's go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> No, but was it fun to write? Was it? Do you write it quickly? Yeah, it was like, yeah. And then just tell us the story about what happened with it. So you, uh, you gave it to Leo. Did you give yeah, it to we Leo? yeah we read it in the class, and I feel like Nick or someone was playing one of the girls, and he was oh, just like, you know, like really, you know. And the great thing about writers reading work is that they they're so shit. They're just like. <laughs> You get, you know, when actors kind of read things and they yeah. kind of cover over the yeah. cracks by being good actors, yeah, and they just like accommodate your bad lines yes. by sort of being really generous, yes. in their performance. Yeah, and writers are like, and <laughs> what do you, you know, I just think awful. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. I always think there should be an ensemble of mediocre actors in, in I agree. You know, just to work on development of scripts. Or just get other writers, yeah. Because you get, you know, you get like fucking Leslie Sharp or Danny Mays, they can read anything exactly, and make it exactly. sound amazing. Yeah, they've ruined it by being <laughs> by so being good. By being too good, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so it was just awful. It was like really slow and leaden and just like, and just seemed to, didn't seem to make any sense and everything. And then I just remember like crying in the kitchen oh. and Leo come, Leo come up and go, I thought it was quite good. I was like, oh, thanks, Leo, you liar. You know, And but I, I did feel profoundly exposed and sort of, you know, um, self-conscious about it. And then, But then everyone was like, yeah, it's great, you know. And then I did another draft and I felt better and, you know, your sort of sense of confidence... It's but, the hardest thing to assess the calibre of your own work, but you're going to say something else. Well, no, I just think that now, actually, I think that feeling is correct. I, f I feel like if I didn't feel really exposed and if I didn't feel really vulnerable and if I didn't feel that it, had, that it was truthful in some way and that it hurt, that it cost me something to write it, I don't think it should go on. Yeah. But it did go on. It did go on. What, did you get a phone call from, like, Dominic or something? Or? Yeah, I was in Topshop. <laughs> I remember and um, he said yeah we're going to do it and um, it was like the best moment of my life yeah <laughs> what was the production like for you? Um, yeah it was amazing because the actors were just so great mm. you know and now whenever were they 10 years old or were they a little yeah, bit yeah one of them was yeah yeah um, they were between 10 and 14 and it just felt like Wow, we could have cast this like ten times over. Mm. What, you know, what did that age bring? What did that? What was the quality or characteristic that actors having actors of that age brought to the theatre for you? They were just so kind of truthful. They just weren't acting. Yeah. They were just there, and they were just saying it, and I believed them, and I just felt like um, 
very grateful mm. that they would spend their time, basically. And it, and it was really well received, warmly received. Well, I mean, I thought it was, the reception was brutal. You know, at the time I was like... That's not my memory of it. I didn't check up on, you know, the reviews I reread for preparation were... Yeah, I mean, I thought, I felt like, you know, I, I think it was, looking back, I think maybe it was well received, but it's my expectation of the way that oh. plays are treated was not how I felt I was treated. You know, I felt like people were literally like... Um, the, 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 the critical reception was a kind of general voice saying, shut up. Wow. That, that's what I felt, that they were saying, who do you think you are? Definitely, that is what I felt. Did yeah. that feel like a manifestation of patriarchy as well? Definitely, yeah. it was all men. I mean... Yeah. How do you, as an artist, how do you deal with that sense of... Well, you just assume you've written a terrible play. Right. And what did you do with that assumption? Um, I think, again, it was probably my peers who didn't think it was a terrible right. play. And audience. Yeah. Who, you know, there were women sort of, like, crying, you know, in the third row or whatever. I think there only were three rows. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> um, you know, like really <laughs> visceral, emotional responses to the work. And then you sort of think, well, she's not faking it. I mean, what would be the point in that? You know, yeah. she's bought a ticket and come to see a play and she's very upset and very affected. Changed, well, yeah, changed, yeah. affected, yeah. So you think, okay, well, that, for me, that is what theatre is. And I understand that there's this other system in operation. I understand that it has bearing on, you know, I wasn't really thinking about having a career then, but you know it does have bearing on those things, I'm sure. And I knew that it was like it had power, but I didn't know the mechanisms of that. I just felt that it was really dark. Yeah, it's I remember one of them said something like that I had deliberately um, created a play in order to have it on at the Royal Court you know, that it was a kind of cynical act. And I remember thinking, gosh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I would never say that um, to someone and I would never say it without knowing it was true, you know. I, I, and I, I was quite shocked by Can that. we name the fucker who said that? <laughs> we can, because we can. Uh, no, he's actually a very well-regarded critic. And right. um, doesn't mean he's got any calibre or sense of being. Worthy I mean, I think any, it was in his early respect. career, and right. like that, you know, maybe there's. I mean, I don't understand how the critic's mind works. Maybe they should have their own podcast series <laughs> you, so you, we can understand. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the critics' critic yeah. podcast. Yeah, and the, the people who are entitled to say what they want. <laughs> but I did think it was um, a way of. Um, Shutting down particular yeah. voices, definitely. Is that um, do you do you still read reviews? Um, yeah, eventually. Because I stop reading them now, I just can't do it. I can't. Well, you have too many shows on. No, it's not. That. It's, <laughs> it's not. It's just like you don't I have find, the time. No, I'll I, read them for you. No, no. <laughs> I find them really disorientated. Yeah. And even good ones leave me feeling slightly weird. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think I've come to understand that they haven't written them to me or for yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. There's not like a letter. <laughs> Dear Emma. You're not having your, your work marked. Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes they do accidentally take that tone that you've handed in your homework and yeah. that is what it's about because it accidentally maybe they feel like, I don't know, you know, I, I, think, it's, I think it's perfectly human as an older person to not want to feel like you're being taught something about the world from like a younger writer, maybe. Right, very good. I think it's human, and I understand yeah. that feeling because I don't want to be schooled on the human condition by like a fifteen-year-old necessarily. But the trouble with that idea is that sometimes they do know more, or they know something very specifically that you haven't come across yet, yeah. Yeah. and. And they own that experience, and you have to respect that. It's the best. It's the thing which, when you talk very generously about Leo, 
Yeah. My experience of being a teacher, I don't know if it accords with your experience, is it's the one space in which you can... I always think I'm quite vampiric when I'm teaching, is I, is I do suck on the souls of the young. Well, you know? other interestingly, other male playwrights have said that to me, that right. they feel that they get a lot out of teaching. Do you think it's different for female teachers? Well, I don't know, but I feel that they are the vampires and I'm the sack of blood. <laughs> and that they... <laughs> Uh, sucking me dry, right. you know, because that is, you know, I, I don't know what I get out of it other than a sense that I'm repaying, um, I'm honouring the system that really cared for me and I feel it's my, mm, I don't know, that I owe the universe, you know, I have to return the, the offering as it were, even if it, I'm not very good at it. I have to try yeah. and, like, re- be generous in the way that I felt that he was generous, you know. Yeah. And But I definitely don't come out feeling, like, nourished. Tell me how your approach to your plays has changed over the course of the last seven years. Is it, It's a big question to answer quickly, but when you compare the writing of Kin to the writing of Hero or the writing of The Sewing Group... Was your approach different? Are you a planner? Do you plan when you're writing? No, I mean, I've heard other playwrights... <laughs> do, do you go to Australia for a week? <laughs> yeah, I just go, I just buy that ticket and that's it. No, I've heard other playwrights say that they have no memory of how they wrote the last play. Right. That's like amnesia right. or something. Yeah. And I definitely feel the same. Right. I feel like I've never written a play before when I sit down to write a play. I can't remember. How did it begin? Where do you sit? Where, where do you work? Well... I have had studios or places to work in the mm. past. I mean, I work wherever I can, really. Yeah. I work at the kitchen table, I work yeah. on the sofa, I work on the bed. Like, I'm really, I like to be comfortable and I feel like it's a profoundly personal. I can't work in cafes or anything. Right. I feel too exposed. I definitely feel that maybe plays start. I think they have to start from real life. They have to start from something that's actually happened to me or someone I know very well. And all of you players have had that treatment. Yeah. yeah. And it's... Um, or if they haven't, then I shouldn't have put them on. Just because it's fresher in my mind because I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> well, can you tell me about how that manifested itself in the sewing group? Well, what I... What the starting point of that was? Yeah, I think for me the that play is about... Um, you know, feeling like social media is toxic and feeling like maybe the internet has, like, has actually hijacked our minds Mm -hmm. and feeling suddenly, like, very afraid of all of that. Yeah. And not in a kind of, you know... I was going to say Luddite word, but then I know what the word Luddite really means. Oh, tell me, I don't. Well, <laughs> during the research of the play. Yeah. Um, so Ned Ludd was a rebel in the weaving um, industry, textile industry because they wanted to use mechanised looms mm-hmm. and he and it sort of disempowered and yeah. put out of work the, the weavers. Mm-hmm. And so they formed a rebellion and they called them the Luddites because right. they were anti... Then they came associated with anti-progress or yeah. anti-technology. Yeah. And um, so when I think of Luddites, I think of kind of like cautious rebels <laughs> rather right. than like, you know... Um, people are people afraid who, of the yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And I do, I did a lot of research, uh, you know, during that process about how the mind, you know, how the brain is, you know, adapts to what's, what is put in front of it, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... And that thing where if you Google, like, um, machines becoming like humans, um, but if it, loads of stuff comes up, but if you Google humans um, becoming like machines, nothing comes up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they just think you've got it the wrong way around. Yeah. It's like, no, I, I genuinely think it's more likely that humans will become like robots than robots will become like, you know, humans. Because of the, 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 the kind of supple, responsive nature of our neurology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that we can adapt to not yeah. caring. Yeah. And... Uh, to just getting stuff done, basically. Yeah. yeah. And that is, um, 
I find that really terrifying. And that sat under the writing of that play. I think so. It's fear. I mean, the, I mean, fear kind of, but fear's a great starting point. Yeah, exactly. It's a really exciting starting point. Yeah. And and there is a kind of element of there's something gothic about uh, like horror. There's in in that play. As an audience member receiving it, there was a sense of kind of the dislocation of two worlds. Yeah. What felt like the future and also the past. Yeah. Which was I found really intoxicating. Oh, good. The, um, why did you... Uh, do you remember the moment of thinking, I know I'm going to set it in the future, but it's going to be a, re- a desperate attempt to recreate a pre-industrial world? Yeah, I mean... Um, well, interesting, because I think it's present day. They are... Right, OK. Yeah, it's... Well, or, you know, near future. Yeah, near future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not present day and it's not happened yet. <laughs> well... Go on, sorry, you talk... No, I mean, I can't remember the question. I can't remember the question either. <laughs> no, where did... Where did the... when, why, why did that form? What, how did yeah. it come about, the writing? Yeah, yeah. I think... Um, I don't know. I just went and had a drink with my friend. Mm. She was talking to me about something. Yeah. And then I was just like, oh, it just, like, landed in my... I think I am interested in how theatre exists in lots of places, not just in the theatre. And how people are essentially always putting on little plays, and how the workplace often constructs those like theatre spaces without realizing it, you know. And obviously, they've gone out and hired a company to kind of construct a theatre space. But um, it's you know, I am interested in everyday theatre, basically. Yeah. Um, It was so rich in your childhood, and the childhood you described was so yeah. a touring show and maybe everyone is like their own yeah. touring show yeah. they've got their little props and their yeah. you know and they do their bit and that's it yeah I think that's really compelling <laughs> there's there unifying themes in your work the stuff which you find yourself consciously or unconsciously returning to I, th- I feel like I'm only really at the beginning of my like journey of mm. understanding what I want to write and why and I, I think that Increasingly, it's the sort of more existential stuff. It's like, what does it mean to be a person? Am I a person? What is it? What does it mean to be a human being? Mm. What does that feel like? Mm. Why does it feel like that? You know, the kind of more. And I think I've been scared of writing about that because it's so unpopular. <laughs> you know, um, people. You know, plays that people like tend to be plays about exterior things. That that, um, there's a version of looking at those kinds of ideas that feels sort of lofty and high-minded and, you know, intellectual in a kind of inverted commas sort of a way Mm. um, that is not uh, the kind of currency of theatre, of, like, good theatre, essentially, because... Good theatre ostensibly ought to be about like what people are doing to each other, basically, or you know, drama, (laughs) obviously. But, but I think those things do and can coexist on the stage in a satisfying way. And I, I do, there are plays that do that. And I suppose what I mean is that, um, I feel that the language of how I want to express how I feel is only just starting really and so I don't I don't know all the answers to the questions but I feel good about trying to find out I it's so exciting to be to have this conversation with you in the sense of empowerment and confidence with that Emma Crow thank you very very much indeed so we have a thing now where we don't stop recording. This is new for season two. Act natural. It's very... (laughs) (laughs) But what we do is producer Anushka has bonus questions. No (laughs) Or facts facts and questions. Well, luckily, because we haven't got much time, I've actually done something a bit different for you. (laughs) It's called the Growing Up in the Military Quiz. Ah! (laughs) And it's super quick. Because you grew up in the military as well, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. One. Are you good at writing hour by hour detailed lists outlining your upcoming week? Um, yes, but I try not to do it. <laughs> Two, do you think in military time? Um, What's military time? 
1,400 hours. Yes, she does. Oh, fucking hell, really? My favourite one is, um, I don't know if you ever do this, where you want to stop an activity early and you go end X. End of exercise. (laughs) End X. Number three, do you roll your clothes when packing a suitcase? Yes. Um, Do you know the NATO phonetic alphabet? No. I enjoy doing it. What is the NATO phonetic alphabet? I'll spell my name. Go on. Um, Alpha Alpha November Oscar Uniform Sierra Hotel November Alpha. Brilliant. Um, Do you think of non-military humans as civilians? Yes. Uh, Do you rebel against authority? Yes. Um, Did your dad try to persuade you not to study the arts? No. Um, and then, uh, last two, did your dad go mental if you didn't remove, like, hats or caps off in the house? Um, it was more, um, not shiny shoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Polish. Yeah. Really? Polish and your shoes. last one. Well, he just polished them for secret us. secret fantasies of being a super high-ranking military leader? Um, no. Do you? <laughs> yeah, man. Of course you do. She's a spy. I've, no t- I've, got a I've got a fantasy about the future of the British military being led by you and Emma. I think that would be so much fucking better. How cool would that be? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the shop at the theatre. Come to the theatre. Come and see the plays. We're at Sloan Square. Come along. Come and see everything. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre. It's presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by the remarkable Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.